0: On today's episode of the Exit Plan podcast, I talk to Gareth Hawkins, who is a co-founder of BizCrunch, which is an off-market deal discovery platform for acquirers. We talk a little bit about some of the deals that I've been looking at recently, as well as talking about the difference between seller's discretionary earnings and adjusted EBITDA, and Gareth talked through the functionality of the BizCrunch platform and their plans for the future, Uh, and we also touch on uh, what people... Like Jonathan Jay and uh, Carl Allen and Jeremy Harbour um, have brought to the small business M and A market. Hope you enjoy today's conversation.
1: Yeah, who am I? Well, I guess um, mid forties, recovering managing director. um, Worked in the industrial space for a good eighteen odd years, and uh, now working in venture. Um, And so, I grew uh, an equipment manufacturing and consumables business um, through um, both organic growth and acquisition, maybe over the 18 years, really it was under me for seven years. Um, And uh, we sort of catapulted the the company to a reasonable size that we were able to then sell to a NASDAQ Nordic listed private equity firm back in 2019. I stayed around in the business for a couple of years, um, exited fully um, beginning of 2021 and then sort of oscillated around the venture space had some capital to allocate so uh, built a portfolio of 30 odd uh, angel investments over a period of three or four years um, around 28 of which are still going maybe six are really flying um, pre-seed and seed stage so yeah very very uh, much immersed in that In that space to the point that I got into uh, managing an angel group and then uh, got approached to join uh, an incubator as investment director where I uh, fell in with the the guys at BizCrunch which um, very much resonated with my kind of M&A journey really Um, and certainly as the mood music is shifting back towards private equity BizCrunch seemed very apropos of now.
0: Okay Um, so yeah tell me a bit about about BizCrunch and what they do.
1: Well, it's um, it's trying to power the sort of um, generational shift in SME ownership. So um, you've got these complementary movements that are happening in the shape of uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You've got um, various folks out there doing roll-ups and playing the valuation arbitrage game that's successfully pursued, like from the likes of. 3i, right the way through to Rockpool and a few of these other funds that uh, do a great job of, of buyouts and building a hold co of a portfolio of businesses and then making a spread on the increase in valuation multiple. Um, and, and that's increasing in volume, uh, I think, it certainly has done over the last decade. And if you look at how much asset value is locked in the SMB space in Western economies, I think that'll only continue. Mm-hmm. Um, but in parallel to that, you've got this retiring surge of baby boomer owners whom 58% of which have no succession plan, 15% of which are working already past their retirement age. Uh, and you've got best part of a quarter of a million companies just in the UK, um, of which around a hundred thousand are doing over a million a year in revenue, um, and double digit SDE, um, that you think, well, there's 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 going to be a need to make the the process of succession sme succession MA, um cheaper faster and easier and so that's what bizcrunch sets out to do starting with a product that's specifically for the buyers the business buyers that helps them to identify off market acquisition candidates before they get to the brokers and onto the marketplaces and have these very high expectations
0: yeah yeah i mean they're talking about it being the largest transfer of wealth in history <laughs> coming up um
1: you can believe it right
0: yeah 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 um so I, i'm interested in the in the sort of valuation um arbitrage game that a lot of uh, that you're seeing because um, i'm doing a similar thing in the video mm. production space you know essentially i'm going out looking to buy small video production companies at roughly three times ebitda and hoping to build a group that I can sell for a a, a higher multiple of, of that ever done. So and what sort of
1: um, aggregate revenue do you want to get that group to? Uh,
0: yeah, it, it depends what day you ask me, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's 10 million, sometimes it's 20 million, but you know, I'm looking at small, small production companies. So, um, you know, studio, yes, which I bought at the beginning of last year, that is roughly 1.6 million. Um, I've got two deals on the table at the moment. One, a very small um, production company in London, which is about 500k. Um, that would be a bolt-on to Studio Yes. Um, but then there's another um, that I'm talking to in the US at the moment, and that's that's about six million dollars in revenue. Nice. Yeah. Um, okay.
1: So that makes that sort of materiality around uh, north of five million rev actually means you could get to a 20 million aggregate rev value on a reasonable portfolio of, say, seven or eight companies in total, which is mm-hmm. kind of manageable, right? Yeah. But once you sure. get to that threshold, you're, you were talking about 3x EBITDA for EV in uh, the, the acquisition side. Um, yeah. You're easily talking north of six by the time you get to that level of, of aggregate revenue um so there is there is a you know healthy spread to be made in the middle if you if you <laughs> mentally and physically survive the
0: journey <laughs> yeah 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 uh, no absolutely i mean it's it's uh it's it's not easy it's this is, you know it's a, it's hard work kind of pulling these getting these deals together and getting them over the line um sure. yeah. and then, and then
1: uh, it's, it's interesting if you're going to be uh, integrating them at all or are going to let them run as their own kind of individual identities because i think a lot of people try to force companies to adopt the, the platform businesses mo mm. and actually there's a lot of attrition and destroyed value in in doing that um so you know where you can get the synergies and the economies of scale great but where you're looking to fundamentally change the external appearance of the company that might be to the detriment of the customer's sort of perception of that company you can mm. actually be a little bit um counterproductive from from my experience so um
0: yeah, I mean, I with the, with the one in the US that I wouldn't be looking to to change the brand um, on that one at all. Um, but with the small bolt on that I've got in the UK, that would that would just be assumed into into the, the production company I've got already. Yeah. Um, I was interested. Um, you mentioned SDE, sellers discretionary earnings. Could you could you talk a little bit about how that works and how that's calculated? Happy to. People who don't know yeah. about it?
1: Took me a while to get my head round as a MBA grad that's always thought in EBITDA. Um, EBITDA is great if you're running a company for the public markets kind of scrutiny, really, where you're quite comfortable paying corporation tax. But if you're running a company uh, in a tax mitigated, tax managed way, as many SME owners do, um, there's a lot of um, a discretionary <laughs> element to, to what you end up sort of um, pushing through the PNL and 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 declaring, and also there's an element of what any seller would have, sorry, any buyer would have to um, add on to the overheads of the company to replace the the seller. So yeah. it's it's a it's like EBITDA but for smaller companies. So you basically take the net profit and you work back the depreciation and any costs to replace the incumbent um, and you know other. Cost of it running as an SME rather than running as a sort of a more uh, grown-up business, uh, but it's it's kind of like S- EBITDA equivalent for SMEs. Is that, is that okay, fair and, and I mean measure.
0: I would call that adjusted EBITDA. What is mm-hmm. there a difference, or is it the same thing? Not in my vernacular, no. Okay, <laughs> um,
1: but m- most most searchers are are um, are talking in SDE these days on the basis that there are other yeah other adjustments and other ways that the P&L is affected by it being run for you know tax optimized means
0: yeah so so what's your involvement with with bizcrunch then what, so i've become a co-founder um
1: okay. and um helping them with the the strategy the the finance the fundraising we've just closed our pre-seed round which is all very exciting um and um general general advocacy really the the team is is five folks uh two of which are, are exited from their previous businesses like myself um one is a is a sort of experienced b2b data SaaS founder um and then there's some developers uh in the mix um but um in terms of out there advocating that that's me and uh helping really to sort of navigate the evolving sort of sme succession in a space for them um because it started as a as a project to provide one of the founders with um, deal flow data, for a better mm-hmm. phrase? Uh, uh, Adam, the, the the original kind of co founder, um, was he, he built a company? Uh, he was part of a team that built a um, hospitality or, or restaurant point of sale product that got bought by uh, Just Eat uh, for three or four years ago, um, and then he went on a, a roll up journey and like you probably discovered that it's not hugely easy to find companies off market. Um, You know, searchers spend a long time going through companies house and equivalents or, or the credit safes or the end or these other kind of credit research tools that aren't really made for acquisition candidate discovery. Um, And then trying to reverse engineer the filleted balance sheets for all those companies that are unaudited and sub 10 million and try and work out really how much, they actually turn over and how much they really make and whether they're leverageable and, and then to decode the ownership structure. So, you know, is it privately owned? Are the owner, who are the owners? Um, are they nearing a sort of retirement threshold or have they been in the business a long time? Are they owner operators? Um, and then being able to reach out to those folks because the big disconnects are in in the traditional old way of doing it, if you will. Um, Find companies through more than just SIC. Um, mm-hmm. Try unpick the balance sheets to work out what the real financials look like. Look at the ownership structure and then how do I reach them? Um, and that's a big missing link because you're normally going off and doing a lot of contact enrichment and, you know, real kind of sleuthing to work yeah, out yeah. how to find where the owners are. So you can have a, a word in their ear without sending this kind of, you know, Open letter to their trading address for the receptionist to open, which
0: will never go anywhere. And you don't or know what to... address is listed on company's house could be their home address, could be office, an accountant. Sometimes, sometimes it's out of date. Accountant, yeah, yeah. Um, so what? So um, so what is how is how is BizCrunch kind of um, augmenting or that data and, and making it more accessible? Yeah, great question.
1: So we have um, effectively. Taken a scrape from all of the company's house five years filed accounts for about five point seven million companies, um, and put a PE lens across the uh, database that's come out of that. So we've we've um, been able to really dive into the um, decoded kind of metadata from the filleted balance sheets, and put. Relatively accurate uh, estimated revenue ranges and estimated EBITDA ranges and uh, debt to asset ratios and leverage uh, indicators and all that kind of stuff over the top, as well as then um, use the list of members, so the shareholders for each of these companies and enrich so find those shareholders and enrich the data to find their business contact direct information to be able to reach those um, those owners. So that's we're taking stuff that, you know, uh, funds and firms are, have got rooms full of analysts doing and it takes them a long time or individual leverage buyout management buy in acquirers that, you know, like you <laughs> um, are doing manually. It takes you weeks um, mm-hmm. to come up with a, a, a sort of a reasonably relevant data set. And then you've got to spend a whole lot of money sending out all of the letters and emails and yeah. hope that some of it hits and resonates and arrives at the right places. So yeah. we, we've taken you know two weeks work and made it two minutes work.
0: Um, yeah, that's
1: what that's what Biz crunch does as product one.
0: Okay, um and you know, without giving away your secret source, like how how do you kind of estimate turnover from a from a balance sheet? You know, I I've, I've got my own sort of like very rough rule of thumb ways of doing it. I can kind of look at a balance sheet and kind of roughly estimate what it is in my head. But yeah, how, how do you approach that?
1: I, I'd I'd love to say that's proprietary and that we've got some sort of patent on it or whatever, but. Uh, It's it's actually, um, you know, we're algorithmically looking at the current assets. So we're looking at debtors, uh, but we're contextualizing the debtors to the layer of a distribution chain or a value chain that the company is living in. So are they a wholesaler? Are they a distributor? Are they a retailer? Is it it cash oriented business? Um, And then looking if they're offering credit terms, if if they're in a space that's likely to be offering credit terms, what's the typical credit cycle? Um, and then, you know, you end up with a multiple that you can apply to the those debtors and, and, you know, reverse engineer what a typical turnover might look like within a range. But we've, you know, we're worryingly accurate in a lot of cases.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> so um, And then, uh, the, you know, the same principle on, on the EBITDA, there's means by which you can look at changes in annual year on year movement in P&L reserves, for example, and start to do the ad backs route, you know, tax and depreciation and get a, a feel for what an EBITDA might look like. Uh, for one of these
0: companies which is enough right because all you're trying to do is just make it a bit more accessible for buyers to make the information a bit more useful you know ultimately once they've identified a target and that person has expressed an interest they're going to request sets of accounts and get and get that data anyway so it, it only needs to be of a certain that data only needs to be of a certain quality and as long as it's better quality than the company's house which isn't hard then you're sort of doing yeah. And and
1: better quality than these uh, um, credit information companies that are built for, you know, trading relationships rather than acquisition journeys. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that's what we've, we've seeked, sought to build. We think we're fairly unique with BizCrunch in, in that sense. Um, and, you know, for, well, you can start, start for free, but the average subscription is from 50 quid. So 50 quid a month gets you 500 companies from your search thesis um that you can uh reach out to if you like because of all the contact information that's in the mail mergeable export uh and the idea is that we save you guys time and cost in doing your outreach because we really just want to help you get the conversation going the due diligence will follow and actually product two for us is to get into that dd space
0: yeah i used um red flag i think a few years ago red flag alert yeah bought a data list from them but it's 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 just scraped from company's house and that's it you know?
1: yep yeah, and you, you sound like many searchers that are going through that same journey of do we buy data from brokers do we yeah. data brokers uh do we go to some of these like mark to market or Endol or credit safe or you know this, they, they, these there are great SaaS tools that do great work for their actual target market, but that isn't searchers looking to buy companies yeah um that's that's where we step in.
0: Okay. Um, right. In terms of market, are you UK, US or what's, where, who, who do you? So do you currently
1: at? we've got, um, so from from the 5.7 million scraped UK companies, we've got about 400,000 that uh, we, we have put through our, put onto our database that are, we think, acquirable in some fashion. Um, and then there's about 15,000 of those that are super, super acquirable where, you know, all of the indicators look good. Um, so that's just the UK piece so far. We've just started plugging in some specific uh, EU geographies. So some of the Nordic countries, Germany, obviously, with the Mittelstand is a big uh, kind of um, exemplar of where there's a wealth transfer to happen. So Germany uh, will be next uh, along the route for us on the roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, yeah, as you know, there isn't really a, a registry of US companies in the same yeah. way as we have Companies House. Yep. So we've got access to about 700,000 SME company data set, um, data records that um, we're currently churning through. So the, obviously the intention is to to be as uh, internationalizable as we can with this, because there are some commonalities in different markets. But we're yeah. starting uh, at home shore, uh with the UK because that's a big enough wealth transfer. Yeah. Um, and then probably Europe. And, and then we'll see where we go with the UK, with the US data.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. I um was it is it the D U N S Dunn's number you get in the US? And I think yeah, Dun and, yeah, and Bradstreet. that's it. And that's the sort of sort of company identifier thing, mm. isn't it? And they I think they have data that they can sell you. But, they do? Yeah. yeah.
1: It's uh, optional um opt-in. So there's no mandate in the in mm. the way that there is here yep. in the UK where we're mandated to put something up on yep. a company's house, even if it's a micro entity balance sheet there there isn't a, an equivalent in the
0: in the states for non-listed companies okay um so so it's mainly buy side that you're targeting and wh- right now what, what sort of si- size of size of companies deals of, is is in your sweet spot
1: so the data set of 400,000 records is uh, north of a million revenue so actually right. between 1 million and 50 million is is the revenue range um you because you can see EBITDA estimates against the data you can see that there's a number of loss making ones in there um uh, but there's also some making some very healthy you know top double digit um EBITDA margins um which is kind of exciting so um yeah we have a range it's it's sector agnostic um you know whether it's Service businesses or um, heavily asset based businesses, we're, we're agnostic. We just wanted to provide an easier way to get access to the data for searchers.
0: Okay. If you ever listen to this podcast and you think that you would like to be able to ask the speakers some questions in person, then I have got just the event for you. On the 31st of January, I'm hosting the first Exit Plan Live event. I've invited three speakers to join me Nick Berry, MA advisor and partner at Green Square. Lisa Pasca, who sold her SEO agency Verve to a network agency group, and Joe Lewin, the CEO of Foundy, an M&A marketplace. We'll be recording a live podcast, followed by a Q&A that won't be recorded, to give you the opportunity to ask the speakers about your own plans for an exit. Um, it's at the Riding House Cafe in Fitzrovia, and kicks off at 12pm, on the 31st and um, please note that I've changed the time it was going to be at 8am but that's a bit early for people coming in from outside of London uh, link to buy tickets in the show notes and hopefully you can join us Um, and what kind of I, I'm interested a bit more in some of these some of these roll-up um deals you mentioned kind of Rockshaw and, and a few others like what Rockpool yeah. Rockpool sorry Rockpool um, yeah can you talk a bit about what what they're going what you're seeing in the market at the moment other people are going out and doing
1: yeah you've got sort of um, two sides of the same coin you've got the individual um, leverage buyout management buy-in acquirers um, many of whom may have been encouraged to do this from some of the experts in the field like uh, Jeremy Harbour and Jonathan Jay and Carl Allen those folks that run effectively kind of playbooks and academies around business acquisition and building a portfolio of a hold co of portfolio and then effectively giving the opportunity to to sell that business on at a larger aggregate value. Um, so you've got you've got those individuals out there doing that, and, and many of them are actually forming sort of small kind of action groups or coalitions or consortium to go out and and, and do that, which is super exciting to to be part of. Um, but at the sort of institutional end, you've got funds like uh, Rockpool and 3i and others that um take either institutional or family office or whatever. Uh, investment in and then go and deploy that powder in acquiring material companies normally north of five million revenue um, and and, you know they they tend to target the the sort of five to ten where they can get sensible multiples going in uh, but they build a hold co that they can then sell on in its in aggregate Um, uh, to that sort of mid-market private equity that is then in turn maybe selling onto listed companies. Because if if you imagine, like, it all works top-down, like the the EV multiple for a listed company is, like, somewhere up around the 15X of EBITDA. So, you know, when they make an accretive acquisition, they instantly make a markup on that because it goes to their share price, right? So um, if they're the ultimate destination for these kind of aggregated um groups to go to then there's there's tranches there's strata of folks that are buying um businesses or groups of certain sizes along the way in that pe stack if you
0: will yeah yeah what is your view on the jonathan jays and carl allens and jeremy harbors of this world Uh,
1: i think they're powering a a a very necessary very important movement um I think they they each bring an interesting flavour to the models the 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 various approaches i mean I, I would perhaps caution that no money down is is a dream and often not often the reality yeah um it it, it yeah. certainly is what we we all aim for seller financed exits yep yeah um is that o- often achievable um no it is probably um the the small the one percent of the one percent. I, I know many people that have done it and it and, and more power to them, um, but it but it isn't the norm. What I like is the community piece that is fostered amongst these groups. So, you know, Deal Make Dealmakers Academy and Harbor Club, you know, what what they do very well, uh Jeremy and, and Jonathan, is they put like minded people together to, you know, support each other uh and to collaborate. And I think that's hugely necessary in a space that could be quite an echo chamber, quite a lonely journey for individual acquirers. So you, almost yeah. they've agglomerated to some extent, the community of, of acquirers, even if they, the agglomeration doesn't happen for each of them individually.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I listened to Jonathan J's podcast for quite a bit um, a few years ago and have been to a couple of his events. And my sort of sense with him is he's extremely good salesman. Uh, he's very, you know, very engaging um, personality but I'd I'd be I think sometimes the people that it attracts aren't necessarily that well set up to go out and buy businesses um, they don't always have the necessary um, experience perhaps so I don't know I'd be interested if if you sort of see what happens after someone's um, attended one of these courses and, and how many of them do actually go on to successfully go out and buy businesses
1: yeah, it's a funnel, right? So um, yeah. not everybody that goes through a course will go on, of any course, not just in the MA space, but people that go on any course, they won't all then go on to be experts, fully immersed in the discipline that they've trained themselves in. So you, you're going to get a, a number of folks speculatively attending these things to just kick the tires and see whether it's something they might want to pursue. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're there for that reason because it probably validates in or out folks that you know for whom it might not be suitable um but those that do go on to do it and i know a number that have done for example um well either jonathan's course or jeremy's in some cases both Mm -hmm. um they they have benefited from the the playbook from the support um from like the organic learnings from other people's experience in those communities um but also there's an increasing kind of access to finance that i think you would possibly struggle to find externally we're not like the usa where we've got the sba where yeah. the, you know the, the government is effectively financing that um that acquisition which is tremendous we you know at the nearest equivalent we have here is something like bgf the business growth fund uh which Stephen welton built to a huge um enterprise of wherever it is four billion aum but that doesn't bring in outside stakeholders to come and do the transition that just takes minority stakes in businesses in the economy and it kind of works as a kind of mezzanine which is great we don't we don't have the equivalent of that we need the kind of organic grassroots movement to do that here and finding finance for that is not for the faint faint faint-hearted because you can't just get that on the high street you need an alternative lender and i think both jeremy and jonathan have you know through their own experience, being able to bring those kind of alternative lenders to the table for the community members. And I think that's a real value add.
0: Okay. And w- um, would that be someone like sort of Thin Cats or, or that type of thing? Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that name for a while. Do okay. you use them? No, it's just the only one that came to mind <laughs> when you were talking about alternative lenders. Um, yeah, so
1: so to so non-UK banks, first and foremost. Right. So um, I, I know some of them have brought things like the Handels and people like that to the table. okay. Um, yeah alternative financiers as well so like not institutional lenders in the traditional sense uh but but you know funds and um family offices and that kind of thing so there there are other places that you can look beyond just your sort of traditional brick and mortar banks Mm -hmm. um and and you know if you're looking to do uh, asset finance sort of you know looking to take the fixed assets and leverage those then you know your lombards and people like that get yep. brought to the table. Um so there are there's a there's a plethora but you know you have to be immersed in the space and kind of lift the veil be to see what's there beyond the obvious. Uh, and yep. I think you know these courses do a good job of helping people think outside the box.
0: Do you think um do you think that kind of education that people are getting on these courses what effect do you think that has on the, on, on sellers? You know, cause there's, there's a sort of like a strong focus on the no money down and, you know, don't use any of your own cash or like leverage it as much as you possibly can. And yeah, I just want, I just wonder about the sort of implications for um, the sellers because essentially you yeah. are creating a marketplace of people who don't necessarily have any money um, who are trying to buy businesses. I think in the, simplest uh, and most trite sense it
1: it results in a lot of envelopes landing on the desk um right. in, encouraging conversations um and if that you know it, it, sellers are either going to be cultivated by brokers or cultivated by buyers and if they if it at least serves to open their mind and make them think about whether they might want to sell their company um then they hopefully will be in receive mode when, you know, a, a buyer with means comes along, um yeah. or a buyer with the kind of deal that they might want to take comes along. Um I don't think it's particularly harmful. There's still the optionality on the seller as to whether they want to divest or not. Um yeah. no one's yeah. no one's forcing them to.
0: No, no, no that's true. Um yeah, I mean I think from you know from my perspective actually a lot of the, the businesses at the smaller end that I've seen you know I as a buyer will obviously try and put together a deal with you know minimal capital payment up front and as much of it deferred or earn out as possible um and that's that's partly just because I have a limited amount of capital to be able to put into any individual um deal but it's interesting because these companies are so small and so sort of volatile and so dependent on one owner even if I did have the money, I don't think I would put more in up front. Well, there you understand. go. And
1: that, that's, that's what I'm really glad to hear you say, because even if you had the money, would you want to give the seller optionality on whether they remain with the company? Yeah. Because if you're trying to get to an aggregate size quickly, the last thing you want to be is in the weeds operating and having to replace, you don't want to buy yourself a job, right? Yeah. So you don't want to have to replace the departing owner's skill set uh, until you absolutely, absolutely have to. So either that involves Bringing through, you know, recruitment, training, development, progression, the the talent within the company, um, or it involves you having to supplant people in from your team or yourself. So um, I think it isn't as much about uh, no money down for capital efficiency as much as it is about seller retention, because yeah. you really want that to be over a phased period so that you know it's a manageable transition, not a sudden stop because that will be very tangible, very noticeable to not, obviously the team. First and foremost, so you might get attrition on on you know talent within the companies that you buy, but also customers might see a sudden change uh, in the MO of the company and you might see a massive tra- attritioning of, of revenue. So you don't want that either. So yeah. even if you have the capital, the most efficient thing to do is to try and either a seller note or a call option or something to tie the, the seller into staying with the business for a period.
0: Um, yeah, I like if two he- years. It's, it's interesting you say that about not wanting to buy a job i mean what i am finding um because i've worked on the sales and marketing side of video production for such a long time that's quite appealing to um businesses that i'm you know talking to about buying um and they that's often the sort of the thing that i can offer so yeah it's interesting it's just about balancing it isn't it it's about saying actually look i can come in i can set up a sales and marketing function but it can't be the plan to sort of do that um and i suppose there's sort of diminishing returns on that as well because if you've got two or three or four companies and you're sort of offering to do that for all of them there's just no way no you can do that no, unless you can clone yourself Barnaby. yeah um you're gonna you're gonna struggle with that one yeah. um <laughs>
1: but I, I think when a when a seller is looking at the ideal acquirer you know they're not always just thinking about capital um for me when we sold the group it was very much about culture and retention of team and progression opportunities as much as it was um about you know maximizing the value of the exit for the shareholders um but we actually didn't take the the highest offer we took the offer that gave um, better continuity and, and worked within a culture of a progressive organization that was going to be supportive. And they, and they, they proved it. They were, it was a really great marriage, if you will, between uh, seller and buyer. Um, and I think a number of sellers would take that over the sort of golden handshake goodbye. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Um, yeah. But in, in amongst all that too, in addition to culture and capital is strategy. And if you bring strategic, improvement particularly then if the seller is retained there and they've got no limit on their upside So, for example you gave them a, a call option and you know we're offering them the ability to improve the EBITDA on the
0: journey and then get a multiple of the higher EBITDA um, which is exactly win- that's exactly the deal that um, I've currently got on the table in the US yeah so you actually that. help the seller to maximize yep. their exit yeah yeah which I think uh, I think that's a really good deal. It can be a really positive deal structure for both sides. Um I agree. Yeah. Um Okay, so with back to BizCrunch. Um what the cause you mentioned the sort of the data enrichment was one side of the business. Are there are there other sort of aspect are there other sort of things that you're working on? Uh yes, yes,
1: we, we want to also serve the the seller. Uh we okay. think a lot of a lot of deal failure is due to information asymmetry and expectation misalignment, where um, you know sellers Absolutely. historically value their companies on the blood, sweat, and years they've put in. Well, mm-hmm. oh, this has got to be worth ten x my SDE. Um, actually, that's not how companies are valued. Um, and uh, a very, very high percentage of sellers don't know how companies are valued by acquirers. And it isn't acquirers being cheap; it's acquirers being on trend or you know uh, aligned to the the standards uh, of multiples of EV in that particular sector or segment. So, um, you know, you're talking about 3X. That seems perfectly reasonable to me, but I can imagine there's a lot of um, sellers that have said, oh, that doesn't sound like an
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I get it all the time. <laughs> I get it all the, someone with, a, you know, 750K turnover business going, no, I'd ever sell for that. Right, well, mm. But you know, it's not it's sell, not material, then, is it? It's not it's not yeah, material. Yeah.
1: So that you know, don't sell. That's your optionality. Yeah. Stick with it. Have it generate some wealth for you. Good luck. Yeah. Um, that's that's how it should be. Um, but we we want better information, better um, informed sellers in that sense, so that it's not a shock when acquirers are coming on along with that kind of offer, and so that they understand why that is. Um, so yeah, we are we are building out a sell side product that will help companies uh, owners to, um, we think, hopefully better embrace acquirers and have a more sensible conversation around the, the metrics and the mechanics of, of how their company is functioning and, and valued. But also, you know, that preparation, that the, the transparency on the company's performance isn't always readily available. If you're approaching them off-market, um, they're not going to necessarily be in a fit shape in terms of maximising EBITDA to maximize their um, exit valuation. And so helping them to prepare their presentation, if you will, you know, data room uh, and management accounts and you know properly structured general ledgers and all that kind of stuff um, actually could improve the quality of the conversation for both sides.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this really sort of chimes with my recent experience. I was working on a deal at the uh, end of last year that ended up falling through the the seller, I think, um, to begin with, uh, got a bit of not necessarily that great advice and then after a little while sort of ended up getting a bit too much advice, wasn't quite sure what he wanted and sort of kept pushing on sort of multiple different fronts to the point where I I, I just kind of felt like, you know, just couldn't, it wasn't clear enough what, what he wanted and therefore kind of couldn't, we couldn't do a deal. And then, and where was that uh, advice coming from, Barnaby? Uh, well, I don't want to be too. <laughs> uh, he he was going out at just just sort of anyone he was aware was aware of in the M and A space. Um, to a broker? Uh, no, there was an M and A advisor um, mm-hmm. involved at one point, um, but very various, various different people on on different sides. I think I think ultimately it came down to the seller actually not being clear enough on what um, their priorities were. Um, and then I had a, that deal fell through. And then three days later, I had a call with another production company. Uh, this guy has wanted to sell his company for over a year. He's been putting, it was a bit smaller, but sort of same, same amount of EBITDA. Um, had put some structures in place to remove himself from the business, had lined up. Um, it was just an accountant with some M&A experience, but had an advisor. I had one meeting with him. And then two follow-up calls with him and his advisor, and my FD, and we were able to do a deal. It, great. Was, it was so sounds like so a business so... in in the right
1: condition for acquiring as well. He yeah, put some so, work in in preparation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we haven't we we're, we're still we actually need to sign heads of terms still, but we've agreed the structure of the heads of terms, and we'll then. That's to great. To, but yeah, congratulations. That's that's amazing. And
1: and you know, silver linings the 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 deal that wasn't meant to be gave way to the one that was, which yeah. is. Yeah, you know exactly what you want um but it's that uh triaging of opportunities that maybe sellers could be more transparent to enable you to do more quickly and more efficiently because you probably wasted a lot of man hours getting to the nitty-gritty with that original that first seller who just wasn't ready let's be, let's be honest yeah. they weren't ready yeah. whereas the second seller as you say higher EBITDA percentage lower turnover yeah. but had gone to great lengths to understand opportunity available to them and make their business fit um that so great it, more, more of those please
0: yes yeah yeah
1: yeah absolutely so that's what BizCrunch crunch is seeking to do with its with its sell side product is to um you know better inform better prepare sellers so that um, buyers don't waste as much time and that kind of triaging can be done more efficiently
0: yeah and also i mean honestly that's part of the reason for this podcast is to sort of try and um you know increase people's knowledge around how 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 these deals work so it's still put... a
1: very esoteric space it's still a, a space that isn't widely understood even yes. by people that have spent their entire working lives immersed in owning a business this yeah. part of it end game
0: yeah yeah it, it was interesting actually the the deal that fell through he he was he became very fixated on this idea of like what the market rate was for his business and my argument was there isn't a market rate you know it it is ultimately an arrangement between two individuals and it's got to be something that's a sort of win-win situation for both of them yeah quite. Um, the seller of this of the business and of the deal that fell through became very fixated on this idea of you know getting getting evaluation done and what was the market rate for his business and um ultimately that just became a bit of a sticking point because my deal was the only deal on the table (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know. and it, and it isn't a market. You know, in, in yeah. that off-off market sense, as you rightly yeah. say, it's it's an arrangement between buyer and seller. It's not a market. Yeah. Um, you you will have to find a mutually acceptable number. There are obviously, I say obvious, it's not not obvious to find these multiples, but there are established multiples within certain SICs. Uh, or certain segments and markets but even they are ranges and they differ based on size and scale and risk of the business so it's not like you could just go to a glasses guide for a company and say oh it's worth 3x ebitda it's that's not how where do where do you get that data from so we pulled it from um about five different places both uk and us and and one out of europe Uh, and they're it seems that they're heavily coveted heavily guarded sort of secrets but um the ICAW has one, which okay. is quite quite useful in the in the UK sense. Yeah, uh, there's obviously there's one out there from BizBuySell. Yeah, there's, I've seen that and one. There's a, and there's a few at, like Harvard Business School and a, and, a, and a couple of others. But um, you know, you've got to normalize them for size of company ultimately, and you've got to look at a. We, we, we still don't think that the data set is complete there for multiples per segment because there is so much fluctuation and it, you know, I don't think there is an international standard either. Mm. Um, It it seems that multiples per size of business is probably more consistent than multiples per segment of business
0: at this, at this stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the biz buy sell stuff, I mean, there was really surprisingly low a lot of the multiples Mm. on that, on that report. Some of them. Yeah. Um, For some quite asset heavy um, segments
1: as well, which, yeah, It was interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, great. So, plans for 2024? Where, where, where? Yeah. Where are so, going? as
1: mentioned, BizCrunch have just recently closed the pre-seed. So, we're uh, onwards and upwards. To uh, we're we're already you know we've got paying customers. We're we're out there um, now, putting our effort into um, responding to customer feedback and. Improving the product, we've got a whole bunch of features planned um, around better intelligence, better trend data, um, you know, growth curves around companies, historic performance, um, all those kind of things that we've got coming up. Um, over the next couple of quarters, on the buy side and on the sell side, building the kind of exit readiness preparation product is is super exciting. Um, we've we've just uh, added a couple of folks to our team on the commercial side. We've got a you know a, a raft of really great investors that have joined our journey that are from the M and A space. So some some authors, some acquirers, some sellers, some business coaches uh, that have you know joined our community. And so we will be launching a kind of community piece around. Uh, BizCrunch as well, just to sort of help with that kind of sharing of um, the journey, sharing of experience, because it is an evolving yeah. space, and there's not a lot of kind of socialized content out there around people sharing their successes. Yeah. Uh, not a complete anathema, anathema for someone that's been in venture for the last few years, where you know everything is talked up <laughs> and everything yeah. is talked about, and almost. Um, productized and processified um that doesn't seem to be as prevalent in in the private equity space in the yeah. MA space yeah. so um, hoping to do a bit for that in, in the community as well but what we want is ultimately more searchers like yourself to come and yep. experience bizcrunch it's it's free to start so you can get an account at uh, bizcrunch.co bizcrunch.co mm-hmm. um and um sign up in seconds and start actually exporting data to do your outreach and then there's you know, various tiers of paid plans in amongst that which give you enhanced uh, alerts and uh, you know updates on new companies falling within your scope and um, uh, additional contact points, etc cetera, etc cetera. so um, yeah hope that more buyers will turn to bizcrunch to help us improve their outreach.:
0: Fantastic. Great. well thanks very much. Um, if- Thank you, Barnaby. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you would like your question answered in MA and Q&A or are wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, drop me an email on barnaby at foxcogroup.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn.